Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby, and in today's program, we're talking natural gas. Zapata George is the expert, Penwest Energy is the company, and we conclude with the thoughts of Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub. Remember that companies do pay a fee to appear on the show, that nothing that you hear on this show constitutes advice to buy or sell anything, and finally, remember that you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. Click on the subscribe with iTunes button on the left of the screen, and follow the signs. Let's crack on with the show. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com It's my pleasure now to be talking to George Blake, more commonly known as Zapata George, and we're going to talk natural gas. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, I've heard you say that natural gas is the most undervalued commodity of all, and we've seen a huge correction in the last month or so. What's going on? Let me tell you why I make that statement. Uh, natural gas, in relationship to oil, on a BTU basis, is a six-to-one conversion. Right now, natural gas, oil sells for 13 times as much as natural gas. It should sell for six times as much. Well, with the world changing, with the massive set of pipelines that are being constructed from Russia to the west, Russia to the southeast, Iran to the southern route to Asia, Iran the northern route to Asia, with North Africa having access to Europe via two routes, the uh, Gibraltar and through Sicily and Italy, these natural gas pipelines are reaching literally around the world. And when you augment that with LNG, we are rapidly becoming a world commodity in natural gas, which will make my statement come true. Now, when you had an isolated market for the subject, you could keep these weird relationships with oil. With the thing becoming a natural world-traded commodity, you can't do that anymore. It will seek that balance at six to one. How long will it take? I don't know, but it will happen. Now, natural gas has had two things happen to it. Uh, we can think of any major commodity that you want to, but you don't normally have a brand new usage imposed upon it. Corn, all of a sudden, has had ethanol put on it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, see, that's a brand new thing, right? Mm -hmm. So the corn market is, you know, with the exception of 
you know, the big plantings report that destroyed it on a short-term basis, I suspect that long-term corn's going to have a nice future. Well, let's look at natural gas. Natural gas in North America alone has had two major burdens placed upon it. Our friend ethanol, because when you do ethanol, in order to get this stuff that's going to rot your gas tank and ruin your engine, uh, to get 100 BTUs of ethanol, it requires 44 BTUs of natural gas to cook the corn juice. That's one. Now, our good friends up in northern Alberta, uh, you know, they got that their tar sand thing, that Athabasca tar sand. Well, guess what, folks? It takes a whole bunch of nice fresh water, which Canada has lots of, and a whole bunch of natural gas to make liquid petroleum out of that tar sand. So now, our friend Natural Gas has two brand new big time users. Well, guess what, folks? These prices that we're seeing, they're not going to be with us very long. We're going to be looking at much higher prices in natural gas, and it's not, and by the way, weather in the United States of America, the last 100 years, if you take the 10 warmest winters, nine of them have been in the last 10 years. Well, folks, don't mess with Mother Nature because uh, she'll come get you. Well, Mother Nature's about ready to come get you. So we've had a truly abnormal weather condition, which has allowed the storage to shield the lack of production during the winter season. We have two cold blasts long about November and middle of January, and they will discover that the storage is inadequate to meet the demand and they will curtail natural gas deliveries to industrial and then commercial users. The only people who will get it will be homes. So mark this in your book because it's going to happen. Well, two things there. Uh, firstly, just tell us what a BTU is for those of us that don't know. I say you're British and you don't know what is a British thermal unit. <laughs> A BTU is a measurement of the heat generated by the burning of said fuel. In a thousand cubic feet of natural gas, there is approximately a million BTUs. So it's, uh, uh, you can measure, well, you can measure the, the heat value of anything by giving it a quote BTU rating. So this um, six to one correlation, I mean, is that not like, say, the gold-silver ratio? Well, Why does it have to come like that? Well, because there's, if you take a, a million cubic feet of gas, okay, and a barrel of oil, there's six times as many BTUs in a barrel of oil as there is in a million cubic feet. In a, excuse me, in a thousand cubic feet of natural gas. Okay? Mm hmm So that's why a thousand cubic feet of natural gas selling at six bucks 
oil should be selling for thirty six bucks, right? If yeah. you just if you just converted it on a BTU basis. But oil selling for seventy eight. Well six goes into seventy eight thirteen times. Well there is not thirteen times as many BTUs in a barrel of oil as there is in a thousand cubic feet of gas. There just isn't. So, so one of those prices is lying. Yeah. Well there's something amiss. Now, if you had, let's say you lived in the Northeast and you had heating oil, which is your source of heat in your house, and you had natural gas piped in at the same time, and you could buy them both wholesale, which, of course, you can't, at this time, uh, you'd have the oil turned off, and the only thing you'd be using is natural gas because you would only use one-thirteenth the cost to get one-sixth the energy. So you'd be using natural gas. Well, this, as I said in the opening remarks about the pipelines and the LNG creating, bringing more balance to world natural gas situation, these things over time will level out. And we will get to that six to one ratio, or very we'll get a whole lot closer to it than we will now. Now, the relationship between gold and silver is something that just happens because of market conditions. The relationship between natural gas and oil is a quantified, measurable BTU difference. So one's real, and the other one make, is made real by markets. What you're suggesting, George, is, is either the oil price has got to come down to 36 bucks, which mm -hmm. is extremely unlikely, I would have thought, um, or the uh, natural gas price has got to, um, well, at least double from here. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, uh, if somebody wanted a guaranteed long-term investment, you would put on a spread and you would be short oil and long natural gas in the appropriate amounts, six to one. Well, of course, you couldn't get, you couldn't horse whip me with a wet rope to get me to short oil, you know. <laughs> Not going to do that. In fact, I have an interesting thing I got on my email today. Headline, Mexico, this is today. Proven reserves of crude oil in Mexico are declining and will be exhausted within seven years if current rate of extraction continues. Mexican state oil company Petros Mexico said in a, nine, in a 2006 annual report, which they released today, I don't think that's very timely, U.S.-based consulting firm PFC Energy said that there, even though there may be numerous investments for oil exploration, it is possible that Mexico in eight years may have to import crude oil. Well, they're sitting on top of the second largest producing field in the world. Only Guar in Saudi is bigger than their big field. And here they're talking about them having to import oil in six to eight years. Man, that's a slap in the face. I, why in the world? There wasn't somebody on CNBC screaming about this instead of 2% of the Dow. I mean, that's all they screamed about all day long was, you know, that three, 400 points that the Dow gave back today.
that's insignificant compared to this news. Now, the, the peak oil is a reality. It's not an estimate. It's not a guesstimate. I'm a graduate of the Colorado School of Mines with a degree in geology. I have a silver diploma to prove it. Now, they don't give those anymore. Just old fellows have them. But a geophysicist, and my father was a geophysicist, from the Shell Oil Company back in the 50s, said all production in the United States will peak in 1970. All production in the world will peak in 2005, plus or minus five years. Well, he missed the U.S. peak by one stinking year. Well, folks, we are already inside of his prediction for the world. Now, the man was a scientist. I would rather go with somebody who has already been right talking on the same subject than somebody who has no qualifications. So I'm going to go along with Mr. Hubbard. There is a peak in world oil production. If you look at the four largest oil companies in the world, Shell, BP, Exxon, and Conoco, that's Chevron, um, you'll find unit sales of these four collective companies has already peaked. Now, that would have been extremely significant if, we, if it would have happened a few years ago, but the argument against it is, oh, well, countries control their oil now. Yeah, well, boy, that's a real argument. We have not had, and this is the truth, we have not had a qualified reservoir engineering report out of any OPEC nation in 26 years. Who knows what they've got? They don't know. We're playing with fire here, folks. I kind of agree with you, George. Every, all the interviews I've heard, all the books that I've read, I think we are um, coming to some sort of energy crisis. How quickly do you think this energy crisis is going to unfold? We're there. The thing that, that just drives me to distraction is that there are multiple, multiple alternatives. Uh, the Chinese are working on a thing called pebble bed technology. Now, back in the 40s, after they had, you know, built the atomic bomb and they were going to harness this monster to produce electricity, they could have taken literally three directions. Well, fusion was beyond them. They weren't smart enough to figure that one out. They're just now starting to make some inroads there. But you could build the massive concrete and steel fission generators, you know, the engineer and architect's dream because, you know, they got to draw all the pretty pictures and then they got to go out in the field and spend hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's the path that they chose. Or at that time, they could have chosen pebble bed technology. Well, briefly what that is, is imagine a graphite ball about the size of a tennis ball with a fleck of uranium in the middle, and you put it in a box, probably not a whole lot bigger than your bathroom, and you're able to hook up to it and get electricity out of it. If it starts to heat up, you just turn it off and walk away. Now, a 
box that big is only going to provide enough electricity for about 4,000 people to light their homes. But you can build them by the scads. Well, there's a university out north of Beijing where a young man's been working, and he came up with a design, and the government commissioned and it so as to prevent collusion. They awarded a contract to a South Korean contractor to build 57 of them. Well, it, I don't know the exact outcome, but they should be built and working by now. Now, this is a feasible idea. Now, tides. Tides are powerful things. They will turn generators. You don't just put them in the Bay of Fundy. You can stick them out in the Gulf Stream. There's, let's face it, wind generation is a realistic approach to the problem. There's, I mean, just think of the hot air that's generated in Washington, D.C. I mean, you just harness that, you know. That, there's, a, there's a source of heat right there. Um, but there's all kinds of things. There's uh, uh, the, uh, the methane that you find uh, on the seafloor. Now, that's a tricky one. There's got to be some technology to harness that. But we're looking at all kinds of things that go unutilized, simple things, like when you build a house, a single house standing freestanding, every tenth house must have uh, an earth generator. Well, gee, it's really complicated. You, you dig a trench 8 to 12 feet deep, you put some PVC pipe down in it, you circulate some fluid through it uh, with a quarter horsepower electric motor, and then you circulate that fluid in a radiator system inside your house, and that that fluid that comes up out of the ground is at a constant 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you can get most of your heating cooling at 68, an auxiliary system will warm it or cool it from there. Well, wouldn't that be a whole lot better using a one-quarter horsepower motor rather than these huge refrigeration and or heating systems that we have? But you don't see anybody mandating that in the construction, do you? See, there's a thousand things we could be doing, and we aren't doing any of them. This is what's disturbing. Yeah, I have to say, um, there's a company called Clean Air Power um, that uh, you should take a look at. They, they've got a, a system which uh, enables uh, heavy-duty diesel engines to to operate on natural gas with the with the diesel yeah. fuel acting as a as a like a liquid spark plug um, mm -hmm. and it, it works out cheaper than diesel yeah well see like I said, there are thousands of viable alternatives which are not being utilized we need to if we're not smart enough to do it in the free marketplace then create a tax structure which gives those things a break. Now, up in Washington State, where the, where the uh, Columbia River and the Grand Coulee Dam are, they have proven that incentives for uh, usage in electrical grid are viable things. People up there are buying solar panels 
and wind uh, and, uh, you know, uh, turbines, wind turbines. Uh, and they're, they're doing all, there's some guys out in the sticks are actually turning their electric meters backwards. Well, they get paid for it. You turn your electric meter backwards and the electric company sends you money. That'd be a nice deal, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. I kind of like that idea. <laughs> but see, there's so much that we're just not doing, and that's what disturbs me because it is available. We have the technology. We just need to get on with it. Now, folks who are listening to this who get excited about it, please go do something. You know, it is our salvation. Now, I'm going to say something about global warming that may be a little bit controversial, me being a geologist. And see, you can't fight with Mother Nature because she's stronger than we are. Along the, the center of the Pacific Ocean is a string of about 1,600 active volcanoes. Well, we only get to see one or two of them because, you know, we call it Hawaii. You know, they they poke their head above the water out there, and, you know, they're shooting out in the air now instead of underneath the water surface. Well, these 1,600 volcanoes generate more garbage and bad gases and calories of heat than you could imagine. So I agree with the, the Al Gore folks. The only thing that we as human beings can do to change these things that are altering our climate are the things that we do to it. We can change those things. But Mother Nature, by her actions, can either overcome the change that we might create if we spent billions and billions and billions of dollars, and then we didn't get the result, and we'd say, well, that didn't work. Yeah, it worked. It would have been worse if we hadn't. But they won't understand that it was Mother Nature, whereas Mother Nature could all of a sudden say, oh, well, let's just cool those 1,600 off a little bit. And all of a sudden, you'd say, oh, man, we spent a few hundred million dollars, and gee whiz, look at the results we got. Well, it wasn't us. It was her. See, you got to understand that Mother Nature, uh, just to be blunt, sometimes Mother Nature can be a bitch. Just about these uh, recent declines in the natural gas price, um, you've attributed a lot of that to the, it's an illusory figure and it's uh, uh, allied to these warm winters that we've been having yeah. and to mm. a misunderstanding of the, uh, what's in well, storage. Um, if you take the, the prices of natural gas for the last 40 years and you draw a line at $6, which is where we are now roughly, right? Mm-hmm. The price of natural gas has spent a few months above that price in its entire history. I personally, as a producer of oil and gas, I was president of a couple of little independent companies, have sold natural gas for seven cents a thousand cubic feet. Not seven dollars, seven cents. You see, when I lived in West Texas as a little feller, you could go out at night in some areas and you could read the newspaper. Oh, the full moon. No, they were flaring the gas so that the oil would flow. 
just like they flare the gas in the Middle East now. Mm-hmm. They would have these enormous, I can remember as a little kid, these enormous flares were burned. They literally lit up the sky. There were so many of them. Well, you used to burn off natural gas to get rid of it. Because, you know, if you just let it fly out there, it caused an explosion. So you burned it. You wasted it. Now, okay, you got to where you had cost you seven cents. Now it cost you six dollars, which on a historical basis, very little time has ever been spent above six dollars. And literally, I think I counted them the other day, only 30 months has ever been spent above eight dollars. So we are overcoming a historical uh, quagmire in, in natural gas prices. But as I have, you have heard me oft repeat the phrase, in today's commodity world, there is no major commodity that is undervalued as much as natural gas. I do not advocate the use of futures. I advocate the purchase of companies whose reserves are natural gas, who have competent management, and who will look for more natural gas, because there is some to be found out there. Uh, Canada, just in recent months, okayed the McKinsey River Delta pipeline. The McKinsey River Delta, which is, lies up inside the Arctic Circle, is going to be an enormous boon for natural gas production. Now, it's not going to be cheap. I mean, these guys are going to be working in Arctic conditions year-round. You're going to be building a pipeline that probably will have to be built above ground because you can't mess with the tundra for a lot of reasons, not just the tree huggers. It's going to be expensive, but it's going to be there. Now, one of those, when you bring that gas south out of the McKenzie River Delta, it will take one big portion of it will run over towards Edmonton so that they can, you know, heat the tar sand. The other will head down into the United States to, uh, it's my understanding that they're going to put it through the, the big new $8 billion refinery that's getting the okay to be built in southeastern part of South Dakota. Now, I understand that Canada has two refineries in the works. Yuma, Arizona has a junior refinery in the works. So North America is getting ready to solve part of their refining problem. But these things, you don't build a refinery in six or seven weeks. You're lucky if you get it built in six or seven years. So all of us who are charged with the responsibility of looking after folks' money, there's going to be a gap in here. Even if we get all these things done, we're still not going to get them done. And you're, you're getting an exclusive here today. As you know, my target for oil has been $84 since the 12th of January. True? Yep. Yep. You heard I heard it. you, you say heard it. Yourself. And I said when oil was 50, 51, 52, this is the bottom. We're going to, the next significant number is 84. That's a true statement. Now, this time, oil will not rest to the extent that it did when it went to 77 before. 
By the way, my target was 73. It, went, it overran my target. And then it reacted much further than I thought it would, but I knew when the bottom came, I could see that. This time, the reaction will be less time, shorter duration, and I'm going to give you a new target, 110, 120. That's all. Uh, it is attainable, believe it or not, before the end of the year. But in no, in no uncertain terms, in 18 months. So somewhere between oh, five, six months from now and 18 months from now, <clears throat> we'll see oil at 110 to $120 a barrel. Uh, now, that will be priced in U.S. dollars. Now, as you folks in Europe know, U.S. dollars ain't worth much. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that there's more than a chuckle or two going around about that, but we'll leave the politics out of it. Uh, we have a serious problem with the U.S. dollar. We have created a quadruple bottom at 80.00 on the dollar index. Now, I was interviewed before oil approached its $40 top a number of years ago. It was at 28 bucks, And I said, there's a quadruple top in oil at $40, and there was. I said, now, with oil at 28 today, when it goes through that $40, it's going to go through there like a freight train. Well, it did. I said it's going to go to 63. It later revised it to 73. We all know that story. Now, we're looking at a similar condition, only this time we're looking at a bottom instead of a top. The U.S. dollar has a quadruple bottom at, a, at 80 plus or minus a unit, 79. Let's don't quibble. When it goes through there, it's going to go through there like a freight train. Now, it's never been in that area before. It will go to 70, maybe even as low as 67. The problem that I fear is that it could do it in a rush and take everybody by surprise. The fact that it breaks through will not amaze a lot of folks, but the rapidity with which the move takes place would be the unsettling factor. So when I quote something in dollars, you got to remember we're looking at a weak dollar, and that's going to change how things work. That happens. Uh, I know people who've bought gold, for example, with their UK sterling, and you know the sterling's been very strong, and so they haven't earned as much money as they would have done had they spent their dollars on gold. Well, I, I have uh, I have some friends. Uh, who have access to some very strong databases. They shall remain nameless for obvious reasons. Um, but they sent me a chart of the S&P 500, not adjusted for inflation, but adjusted for the dollar index, adjusted for oil, and adjusted for gold. If you had purchased the S&P 500 and used gold, your high would have been in 99-2000, and you would have been in a steady decline, not a rush back to records. Mm -hmm. you, would be, you would be below the 1993 level of the S&P 500 at about 400, not 1,500. If you'd used oil, it's even worse. In other words, the, the, only, the only place where the S&P 500 has gone up 
is if you bought it with dollars. Well, they have lost their value. The dollar index six years ago was 120. It's now 80. That's a you had a one third loss. Well, you have to have a whole lot more than a third gain to make up for a third loss. Because if you have a 50% loss, you have to have a 100% gain to get back to where you were. So you're not making up 33%, you're making up a whole bunch more than that. Now, that tells you that if folks use their euros to buy the S&P 500, they've been very disappointed. You called the bottom uh, in oil in uh, February, and when you, when you were saying that, I, th I thought you were about to say that I'm now calling the bottom in natural gas. Uh, well, here's the thing, uh, it, and I'm not being trite with you. It doesn't make any difference whether uh, on the NYMEX that it's $6 a bottom or $5 a bottom. From an investor's point of view, and let me tell you, there's only two kind of folks either a gambler or you're an investor. Now, I much prefer to talk to investors. I much prefer to talk to people who realize we're here today and five years from now we're gonna be there. There is higher than here. It doesn't make any difference how it wiggles between here and there. Now, sometimes you will take positions and in a short period of time, you will have a significant annualized loss. Well, that's why you don't put it all in at one shot. You don't run out and jump into the swimming pool without looking. You go out and you stick your toe in, and then you decide if you want to jump in. Now, I am a great believer in we're here now, and I know where we're going. We're going intermediate term in oil to 120. Well, divide six into 120 and you get $20 natural gas, right? So someplace along the line, we're headed for $20 natural gas. Okay, if we buy companies that are engaged in the production exploration of natural gas, as my stock of the year, which is available on, uh, what do you call that thing, YouTube, yeah, you can visit YouTube and see Zapata George stock of the year for free. They are engaged in the production of oil and natural gas. They are going, uh, those kind of companies are going to be the beneficiary because I like to know the people. I, as I tell folks, I don't buy companies, I buy people. Well, it's just like Mr. Riddell and his family. Clay Riddell is noted as the richest man in Calgary. His income is $128 million from trusts alone. His daughter runs a company that is a natural gas trust. I like the stock. Now the stock that we're talking about that's listed on the YouTube is Penn West. Penn West, Mr. Anderson runs Penn West. He has a competent team of explorationist. He himself is a go-getter. He's been in the business for years. He understands the business. He's a good manager. Therefore, it is, now, it's one of the three or four largest uh, trusts, oil and gas trusts in Canada. I like Canadian stocks because they are non-dollar based. 
I tried to get my U.S. clients to get out of dollar-based assets for the reasons we spoke of previously. So here you are if you're a U.S. investor. You've got a Canadian stock. It pays a nice dividend. It's invested in a natural resource industry. You get paid while you wait. Uh, now, there is a chance, of course, that they could cut it, but right now it's yielding about 11%. Sells for about 12 times earnings. Well, good grief, that's a whole lot better buy than Exxon, you know? And it's in Canadian dollars. Since I started buying Canadian stocks, the Canadian dollar was at 72, now it's at 94. I started recommending the New Zealand dollar way, 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 way back when, when it was 42 cents. I did it again at 58 cents, and the other day it hit 80 cents. Now, if the Japanese carriage trade, carry trade unwinds, the New Zealand currency could be hurt, at least on an intermediate-term basis. So you want to approach that investment with caution. But these things are... These are long-term. Somebody called me one day and he says, when are we going to get off this New Zealand dollar trade? And I said, oh, did it get to par? And, of course, it was about 60 cents at the time. He said, no, no, it's at 60 cents. And I said, well, when it gets to par, why don't you call me back? <laughs> in other words, don't get in a hurry. It's a long-term deal. It's something that you don't, you don't put all your money into it. You put a limited amount of funds you are patient. You see, the hardest lesson for folks to learn is patience as investors. I mean, Penwest is an, is an oil trust. I know you like it. I've heard you mention it before. But do you like the juniors? Do you like the uh, oil and natural gas juniors? Or do you prepare? Yes, yes. In fact, on the new website, what we will have is we'll have the monthly letter, and then we'll have the investment stock of the month. Okay. Obviously, we gave away the stock of the year for free. We're going to charge for the investment stock of the month. But there will also be a speculative stock of the month. And that, that will include, uh, well, uh, it will include stocks, I hope, like my old friend BlackRock Ventures. Uh, that was a $4 pick that I made years ago. And the mighty Shell Oil Company relieved me of all of it last a year ago, May, at 24 bucks. Now, it was a speculation. It paid no dividend. But, again, it was a team of people put together, and they had worked for uh, the Coke oil and refining people, uh, the richest private oil company in the North America. And uh, they had split away from them and formed their own company, and had done a really good job. And uh, it was a spec, but it was very rewarding. Now, hopefully, in my juniors, uh, we'll get the home runs. But when you're buying a junior, remember, if it says exploration, you can substitute bankrupt in there for your thinking purpose. Because anybody that has to go back to the public for funding is one step away from bankruptcy if they misstep on new funding. So these juniors come with a caveat. 
And if you don't like that caveat, maybe you ought to stick with the investment grade issues. Now, I love investors. I think that they're smart folks. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I have a 98-year-old mother. Uh, her entire portfolio, with the exception of Newmont Mining and Pan American Silver, is invested in Canadian Energy Trust. Gee, wonder why, I'd, wonder why I'd put her in there. Well, in the last four years, she doubled her money and received 21% on her investment while she waited. Very nice. <laughs> what about uh, what about your portfolio? How much of it is uh, weighted to oil and natural gas, and how, how much is weighted to uh, other resources? Um, I would say probably we're looking at 60-65% on the energy side, and that includes coal as well. And uh, uh, I am a big gold and silver freak, but I like the metals. I like copper, like zinc. Um, these are things, well, think, think this way. China provides, even today, almost a third of the oil that they use is produced in China. But when it comes to copper, only 16% of the copper consumed in China comes from China. So there is a larger deficit in copper than there is in oil in China. Well, I got news for you folks. I got on to China, oh, four and a half years ago. And, you know, back then they said, what are you talking about? Are you talking about dinnerware? And I say, no, 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 I'm talking about the country. You had to even explain to them back then that you weren't talking about dishes, you know, when you'd say China. That's how unknown it was. But uh, I, I saw that because of an anecdotal story. I won't take your time with it. But uh, these people, we have introduced 2.3 billion people to the new age of consumerism. Well, back when Henry Ford did it in North America, he only had a base of 110 million. It took him 40 years to penetrate the market. We're now looking at an area where we have internet and not radio. We'll do it in one-fourth the time, and we have 20 times, 21 times as many potential people. You don't think this is going to be the largest economic expansion in the history of the world? Of course it is. It's going to go on for years. It will ultimately, China will become the largest economic power in the world. The currency of China will do the, oh, you're not going to like what I want to say next. Uh, <laughs> you remember back in the jolly old 1800s when the sun never set on the Union Jack? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Well, you see, uh, Britannia ruled the waves in the 1800s, and after World War II, America did. Well, during that time, the pound, which bottomed in about 1980-81 at one-to-one, -one, went from over $10 to $1. You could, U.S. dollars 
You had to pay $10 to buy a pound, then you only had to pay a buck. Same thing will happen to U.S. currency versus Chinese currency over the next 50 years. There will be a 90 or a 10 to 1 revaluation, the Chinese currency being the stronger, of course. Um, so you guys uh, suffered your fall from the top, and we will do the same. That is the nature of the world. I can't change it, but I can recognize it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, George, it's um, it's been a real pleasure. Just uh, quickly before we close, just give us a quick uh, why we should buy gold and silver. Uh, Blake has five magic rules of investment. Very quickly, human nature never changes. That's rule one. Rule two, the foibles of rule one are recorded in history books, magazines, blah, blah, blah. Rule three, the world runs on oil, always, you know. Rule four, gold and silver are, are the only real money, always have been, always will be. And rule five is fundamentals will out. So referring to rule four, it is the only real money. And since the world's reserve currency could be in question, there may be a need for real money, and you haven't seen any movements in gold like you might see under those conditions. You must have some of that in your investment portfolio. Now, leverage is offered through companies who engage in that activity. I own some bullion. I'm very proud of it. I quite frankly enjoy looking at it. Maybe that's just because I'm getting old. <laughs> I, uh, hey, fella, it, it's been fun. It has. You know, I, I know all the gold and silver arguments, but I just can't see us returning to an era of, of, of gold and silver being currency. I just can't see it. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is this, that it is very possible because of the scarcity of those items, they will take on uh, literally a life all their own when this ocean of fiat currency gets destroyed. Now, uh, to actually be used as hand-to-hand -hand exchange, I'm not suggesting that. But you gotta remember, uh, man seeks stability in times of chaos. Now, do you feel better? I have a, a doorstop, and people think it's kind of funny because it's kind of funny looking thing. They say, what is that? And I said, that's a 100 ounces of silver. They say, you use it for a doorstop? And I said, yeah, I know where it is all the time. I don't have to look for it. It gives me a good feeling to look over and see that 100 ounces of silver holding open my office door, okay? I wear a necklace, which is in a lot of the pictures, and everybody says, oh, you like the bling? And I said, no, I said, you see that, first of all, that gold chain's fairly heavy and fairly expensive, but I say, you see that dollar sign there? There's over two ounces of pure gold in that dollar sign. It makes me feel good 
when I wear that. It makes me feel secure. Well, this feeling is something that rule one, human nature never changes. Well, everybody feels that way who has any concerns, who understands, and even those that don't, they still like bling, you know, so you can't lose. <laughs> I'll tell you something, George, a friend of mine is a crazy silver bug, and I always say that if you think the gold bugs are mad, wait till you meet the silver bugs, but he's a crazy silver bug, and uh, like you, he's got some silver bars around his house that he uses as doorstops, and he was burgled mm -hmm. a couple of months back, and uh, the burglars kind of you know, took a fair amount of his stuff, but they left the silver bars. <laughs> uh -huh. That's the most valuable thing laying there. Yeah, silly donuts. Yeah. Well, anyway, see, salute on. to ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> George, it's been a real pleasure. Um, as we close, do you want to give out uh, your website and uh, some information about your book that you wrote? I didn't know you'd written a book, but uh, yes, and also yes, about the, the new website that's coming. Okay, the the book is uh, was called Death of the Dow, question mark, D-O-W meaning Dow Jones Average, uh, was released in uh, 1999. And uh, we will find the letter, the stocks, the speculative stocks, the little one-liners, they're actually little four-minute blurbs on things. This will all be on the new website it will be up and running no later than September the 1st. If you go to zapatageorge.com, that's Z-A-P-A-T-A, george.com, and we'll be up and running the 1st of September. And uh, you can buy individual letter by the month for 20 bucks. We'll have investment stocks. We'll have spec stocks. And then we'll have little YouTube things where I just give you four minutes on what I think about a specific item. Uh, the attention span of everyone is decreased, so four minutes is probably too long, but they'll be available, and this will all be available very soon. Four minutes is a good duration for YouTube, I think. Yes. It's, uh, they, they set a limit on there for a reason, and it worked. This, this is... Uh, I, I have been impressed by that modus operandi, uh, no end. It's, uh, people are, uh, it is so popular. And uh, uh, people are, uh, we put it on unannounced and literally within a matter of a few weeks had multiple thousands of hits. It's just been amazing. Well, that's good. I, I've, I've watched a couple of them, actually, folks. Uh, I recommend them. If you just go into YouTube and type in Zapata George, you'll, uh, you'll come across this strange man with a beard. Um. <laughs> and a little bling. And, uh, yeah, bling. And a, you want to change that uh, eye, eye thing. You want to change that and make it a golden one. There you go. No, I have a, a light-sensitive right eye, and I was going to wear I, I wear sunglasses. And somebody said, oh, you're, they'll think you're trying to look cool if you wear sunglasses. And I said, well, I want them to know I'm serious. And so this guy said, well, he said, here, take this. And he handed me the eye patch. And I've worn it. Well, I, I, I have, in TV interviews, I have to wear it. Yeah, my, uh, one of my daughters has got very uh, s a very similar problem. And um, 
She's going to need one. Yeah. She's prettier than you, though. And I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> George, thank you very much. Well, hey, uh, you were fun. I enjoyed you. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. Well, Zapata George was raving so much about the Penn West Energy Trust, even after the interview finished, that I thought I'd phone them up, invite them on, and find out what all the fuss is about. And their president, Bill Andrew, kindly agreed to an interview. So he's talking to me now from Calgary in Canada. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dominic. Um, why don't we start by you telling us a bit about the Penn West Energy Trust. Give us an overview. Certainly. We're, we're an income trust in Canada. Uh, the income trust uh, is different from uh, a conventional corporation that you may be used to uh, in that we uh, distribute capital. Uh, so we have, uh, for the investors in the company, they hold a unit or a share in PanWest, and that uh, on that share uh, they receive a monthly uh, distribution. In the case of uh, where we're trading today, uh, we're trading at uh, approximately $32 uh, Canadian, and uh, our distribution uh, right now is uh, $0.34 cents per unit uh, per month. Uh, so if, if you uh, multiply that uh, by 12, it's about $4.08 uh, per unit per year, and that gives you the, the distribution of, of roughly 11%. That's excellent. The, the, the company itself, uh, we are uh, an oil and gas uh, company on the upstream end. Uh, we're producing uh, uh, entirely in Western Canada. Our current production levels uh, are about 130,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. Uh, we are uh, weighted slightly to uh, oil production. Uh, our production uh, right now uh, it is uh, approximately... 55% oil and approximately 45% natural gas. Uh, of the oil, uh, the uh, high percentage, uh, about uh, 70% of our oil is uh, light oil. And is this, uh, this isn't the, uh, the famous Canadian tar sands that we hear about? No, uh, we, 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 we do certainly have properties in, in, uh, in oil sands. The, uh, and, and Certainly, when I've traveled to Europe, the, there's a tremendous amount of interest in, in the tar sands. In, in Alberta, there, there are two types of tar sands. One is uh, the mineable type, uh, where you basically uh, build a, an open pit mine and you extract the, the oil from the ore, from the, from the rock that the, the oil sands uh, are made up of. Uh, in our case, uh, we have a, a very large oil sands lease. Uh, that encompasses some 300,000 acres. Uh, it, it is situated uh, uh, geographically approximately 200 miles west uh, of the tar sands, uh, the Athabasca tar sands. Uh, and because we are uh, that much west, we are down into the basin. And uh, the, the, the oil sands deposit that we have, uh, we, we produce conventionally. So we drill wells that are approximately 2,000 feet deep, mm -hmm. and we extract them uh, initially using conventional technology. The oil 
the oil that we get out of the ground uh, is of uh, uh, reasonable enough quality. It is it is viscous heavy oil, but it is of reasonable enough quality that we can uh, physically uh, produce it with, with a pump, and and are able to uh, to produce it in a conventional manner. Uh, the uh, the deposit itself, uh, uh, we've started working on it uh, about uh, three years ago as far as putting the land position together. Uh, we've been a uh, much more active over the past year and a half. Uh, we're on the very early stage of uh, development. Most of our effort uh, to date has been on exploration. Uh, we are producing approximately 3,000 barrels per day of, uh, of oil from the oil sands uh, deposit. Uh, but we believe there's a tremendous amount more oil there. Our uh, internal calculation on resource uh, is that we believe that there's uh, somewhere between six and a half and seven billion barrels in place, uh, of which uh, if uh, if we were successful, uh, we would expect to extract a fraction of that, uh, and and the fraction could be anywhere from uh, five percent. Uh, up to 25%, depending on on uh, where you are in in the uh, in that 300,000 acres. I see. And before we come back to your main resource, um, let's just talk about the uh, the the um, your your oil, oil sands resource. How much is that going to cost you per barrel? We we believe that the the uh, the, the two parts. Uh, and when you talk about uh, cost per barrel, the uh, what, we, what normally people in, that follow the industry. Uh, Look at finding and development costs, and that's the all-in cost of of, uh, of of discovering the discovering the oil and, and putting the, the necessary uh, facilities and equipment and wells in place to extract the oil. In our case, we we believe that that number would be uh, less than ten dollars Canadian per barrel. That's extremely uh, cheap, isn't it? That's 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 relatively cheap. Uh, it, it would fall uh, basically. Uh, in the range of, of where a lot of the heavy oil uh, resource in, in Western Canada uh, is on finding and development costs. The, in terms of the oil sands, uh, a mineable oil sands, uh, their uh, finding and development cost uh, would be uh, probably about half that. So they would be in the 4 to $5 range. But one of the distinctions uh, with our, our oil sands uh, deposit and the mineable deposit comes in operating cost. Uh, our operating cost initially uh, would be less than $10 per barrel, and we would expect that as we as we went into thermal recovery techniques, that uh, there'd be there'd be an increase uh, to probably the high teens and maybe $20 per barrel. That would compare with the oil sands that are running in the range of $25 to $30 per barrel operating cost. A little more expensive to find. A little bit uh, cheaper to extract. Yeah. Now, so would it be fair to say that um, while the bulk of your production currently doesn't come from these oil sands, the bulk of your exploration efforts are there? Yes. There's no, there's no doubt that uh, uh, with the evolution of this prospect, if it if it evolves as as uh, we believe it will, uh, that uh, if you look at the company, let's say 20 years from now. Uh, that uh, a lot of the production will be coming from uh, from the oil sands property. And can you put uh, a, a figure on this? What your entire um, reserves are? The the, the we, we have a very difficult time uh, as far as the proven reserves because we we, we tend to be very conservative uh, 
uh, with our proven reserves. Uh, the, the number I, I uh, talked about before is an oil in place, a resource number, uh, which uh, you know I, I, I certainly caution uh, investors that it's strictly a resource number. But we believe the resource is somewhere between six and a half and seven billion barrels. Uh, we have uh, physically booked um, a mere fraction of that uh, uh, in the range of uh, about uh, 10 million barrels. So uh, basically, we, as, I, as I outlined before, uh, we would look at uh, a recovery uh, on the project, depending on, on the particular property within the project, recovery ranges of somewhere between five to twenty five percent so if you if you take sort of a middle range there uh, at uh, at fifteen percent and multiply by seven billion barrels uh, uh, you're 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 looking at uh, uh, about a billion barrels of recovery recoverable oil, which is a very significant uh, resource the 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 whole company. Uh, Penn West right now, our uh, proven plus problem reserves are, are slightly less than 500 million barrels. So, uh, as I pointed out to other investors before, uh, we are on the on the initial stages of this project. But I believe that uh, you know recognizing the risk that's uh, inherent with the project, uh, that that the project uh, does have the potential in the future to basically replace what we have now and and possibly double what we have now. And at the moment, you're producing how many barrels a day? Three thousand. We're we're just uh, really in the very cursory initial stages of of, uh, of uh, delineating and, and exploring the property, and then uh, just starting over the last year to to bring production on. I see. Uh, we, we we feel that uh, our our feeling is that uh, you know rather than. Uh, begin in a, a, a real headlong uh, rush uh, to put oil uh, on, uh, we'd rather uh, take our time, uh, learn all that we can about the, the property, or as much as we can about the, the, the total property that we have, and then uh, try to bring it on in, in, a, in a much more measured basis uh, with, with knowledge of, uh, of where, how, how the deposit maps out and how it can be best extracted. Uh, so we, we we have a, a, a near-term target. The near-term target is to uh, uh, take production from the area up to 20,000 barrels a day, and that would be uh, uh, within about the next three to three and a half years. And then after that, I believe that uh, obviously if, uh, if there is a resource of a billion barrels or so, we've got to get uh, a much higher rate of extraction out of it. And with this significant dividend that you're paying out, um, have you still got enough cash to fund all your exploration, your refining, you know, all the things that you have to do? That, that's the interesting part of it right now. The, the, there's no doubt that uh, the projects of this scope uh, ha have generally been uh, the territory of the, of the large uh, integrated companies uh, in the world uh, or the very, the very largest uh, senior independent companies in, in, uh, primarily in North America. Uh, we, I, I, I don't look at. I look at it as a bit of a challenge, but not not a not a real obstruction to what we're planning in the future. Uh, we we have certainly enough capital uh, to continue uh, with two or three years of, of work and, and move us up towards 20,000 barrels a day. At that point, and then by that point, you're looking at uh, uh, probably late 2010 or well into or into 2011. 
at that point, I believe that, that uh, we, we'd be at a, a place where we would have to invest significantly more than we had been investing. I see. Uh, Does that, that presumably means a smaller dividend payout? That means one of, one of three things. Uh, one would be a smaller dividend payment payout uh, uh, to, to allow us to finance it. Uh, secondly, uh, w- would be to uh, maybe uh, form a strategic partnership, uh, ship, particularly with somebody on the downstream end uh, who would uh, uh, maybe provide uh, some financing. And, and the third thing, uh, quite frankly, would be to, uh, uh, to maybe sell a portion of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or bring a partner in who would uh, who would carry the capital costs in exchange for an interest in the property. So we're, it's not we're not we're not uh, married to one particular notion at the at the current time. Our, our preference is just to go ahead with the project and just see how it plays out, and then uh, uh, make a decision as we as we get closer to uh, 2011. Now, Bill, I want to ask you about your natural gas, but let's just uh, just talk about the structure of your company for a moment. Um, yep. Is it appropriate with an energy trust to talk about a market cap? Oh yes, we 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 trade and uh, we trade publicly in in Toronto and uh, and in the New York Stock Exchange. Our market capitalization, I'll give it in U.S. dollars. That's probably the easiest. It's about seven billion U.S. right now, and our debt uh, in U.S. dollars uh, current debt is about. Uh, uh, one point uh, about one point five to one point six billion our cash flow uh, u s dollars per year uh, is between one point two and one point three billion i see the, and, the, ba- and the balance sheet is good uh, i don't uh, you know we're 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 trading uh, we were a victim uh, as were a lot of the income trusts in canada we were a victim of uh, some proposed legislation on taxation of income trusts and that's uh that's pushed down our, our unit price, uh, but but we're basically moving with the pack there. And then certainly, in the past uh, uh, seven to ten days, everybody's seen what's uh, gone on with the market, with the nervousness, particularly in the U.S. Uh, that there's been some downward movement on the stock. Well, I have to say, Bill, that amazes me. I mean, the oil price goes up and the oil stocks go down. It makes no sense. <laughs> well, having, having gone through the uh, having gone through the tech bubble and, and having been been told by uh, uh, by the gurus at the time that there would be no need for the old the old world economy and that, uh, that you know we didn't need oil and we didn't need wood and we didn't need coal and we didn't need minerals, uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, you know that when, when it seems now when when uh, panic set, uh, sets in a little bit in the market uh, they just kind of whitewash everything uh, with the same brush and the market gets caught in a downdraft. And I, I believe that, uh, you know, for a savvy investor, it creates opportunities. Uh, because, the you know, the old adage, I believe, in the market is to, you know, look for companies with strong fundamentals, look for companies that hopefully are, you know, are, are well-managed and honestly managed. And uh, if you can do that, uh, uh, certainly over the test of time, you, you won't be disappointed. I, I couldn't agree more. Let me let me just ask you a, a couple of questions. Firstly, um, you know this change in legislation from the Canadian authorities that we saw last, uh, I think it was November. Um, yes. I've read some hints on the internet that they might not actually uh, see that through to its conclusion. Uh, can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I, th- I think if there, if there would be any change, it would uh, probably be through political change because the, the legislation is enacted. Uh, uh, usually, when, when government has enacted legislation, they're very reluctant to go back and change it. 
there is uh, a, a fairly strong uh, uh, movement among the uh, trust investors uh, that, uh, with an anti anti government sentiment, uh, and uh, you know that that could impact uh, what happens before 2011. Mm-hmm. There is an, there is an election in Canada that at the latest is scheduled uh, in 2009. But barring that, I mean we're we're basically managing the company, assuming that the legislation will come into effect in 2011. And if it doesn't, great. And if it doesn't, great. Yes. Um, now, and I, I believe that I believe that uh, that has been, in my mind, with the income trust, that's been fairly reflected in the market. That I believe there's an assumption among investors that the, that the legislation will take effect. Is hedging something that you practice? Yes, we do. Uh, we, uh, we we t- we tend to hedge. Uh, uh, basically, to, to protect our capital program uh, and uh, or a portion of it. Uh, currently, uh, we have uh, we have some hedges uh, on crude oil uh, as well as uh, a little uh, smaller amount of natural gas hedged. I wish it was the other way around, but that's just the way it, uh, it worked <laughs> out. Our hedging, we're we're uh, we're not out of the money on any of our uh, oil hedges. Hedges we did them with broad collars. Uh, and uh, the the uh, ceiling on the uh, on the collars, uh, the lowest ceiling, uh, is uh, about uh, eighty three or eighty four dollars. So we're still we're still within the uh, we're we're still not out of the money there. Uh, natural gas uh, again, we did them on on fairly broad collars, and we're we're in the money on on the gas collars with our our floors are are in the seven dollar range. Oh well, that's good. You got that one right. It's, it's good and it's bad because we're, you know, we 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 we're not, we don't we don't tend to be much more than a third hedge at any particular time. So oh, I see. Uh, whenever you're winning on a hedge, you're usually losing a little bit in the rest of the company. Now, I mean, well, let me first before um, I uh, ask you about how much natural gas you have. I, um, what's going on with natural gas? Why is it so cheap at the moment? Well, it's the natural gas is, has. Uh, the, the biggest uh, consumer of natural gas uh, we're in in, uh, in North America is the United States, and we're very dependent on the U.S. market. Uh, natural gas is uh, because it is uh, uh, much more a regional uh, commodity uh, in the North American continent. We're very dependent on weather patterns. So we've had a we've had a very mild winter uh, in North America. Uh, we had a, a fairly cool summer. Initially, although we're we're receiving the heat now that uh, a lot of uh, Eastern Europe has been receiving for the last two or three weeks, so uh, the heat is starting to pick up and gas prices are starting to pick up a little bit. But uh, because of the warmer than usual winter uh, last year, there was a lot of gas that went into storage. Anytime the storage starts to get uh, full, uh, then uh, obviously gas price comes down, and uh, that's that's what we were faced with. I think the surprise to us has been that. Uh, uh, the, the the softness on the gas market wasn't as much as, as probably we had thought. We uh, my own personal speculation was that, that we would have seen uh, gas prices approaching uh, the 450 or five dollar U.S. range, and in reality, they, they uh, the lowest they got was about a dollar higher than that. You sound like a man who's lived through too many bear markets. <laughs> I've lived through a few, so I've seen I've seen oil go down, you know, to, to eleven or twelve dollars. So, uh, you know, fu- fundamentally, uh, uh, gas is 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 very much a, a, an energy source of choice uh, for consumers, 
yeah, but it's it's very much weather dependent as well. So uh, I think as we used to in the old days, we need a cold winter, we need a uh, a good warm uh, humid summer and uh, if we get that uh, even through August and September I think you'll see the uh, some of the gas storage levels come off and you'll see uh, see gas start to strengthen. George was talking about this six to one gas to oil ratio is that yeah. something that uh, you believe in? <laughs> I, 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 I was brought up with ten to one but you know six to one became one of convenience uh, uh, and if you look at the the BTU uh, conversion, it's about six to one. But uh, so I, I, you know, I have to believe in what the market accepts, and the market is uh, uh, in, in in the North America anyway is uh, totally on a six to one conversion basis. So that's what we use. Okay, but at the price wise, it's what twelve to one. Or oh no, twice price wise, there's a, there's a great disconnect. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just quickly give us an overview of the uh, the natural gas that you have. Uh, from a, a natural uh, gas uh, uh, point of view, as I say, uh, uh, roughly 45% uh, of our of our production uh, is on natural gas. We're producing uh, about 340 million cubic feet a day of natural gas. Uh, a lot of our gas properties are in the in the northern part of Alberta, the province of Alberta, in northern British Columbia. Uh, we've also uh, have significant amount of gas uh, in the corridor between Calgary and Edmonton, uh, much more uh, mature gas there. Uh, natural gas has been a, a little bit difficult in, in Western Canada because of the basically the costs associated with uh, with finding it and uh, not so much extracting it but finding it. Uh, we've seen a lot of our, our costs escalate uh, fairly significantly in the last few years. Uh, the Probably the easiest thing to point out is the fact that in the United States last year, there was very aggressive gas drilling. In Canada, there was uh, minimal gas drilling. And uh, if you think to yourself that uh, you know we're basically selling into the same market, which is the primarily the eastern seaboard of the United States and uh, and the Los Angeles, San Francisco area, it's uh, it's it's strange that they were drilling and we weren't, and it, that reflects basically the cost of uh, of our services in Canada. Those costs have come down and they've come down fairly significantly over the last six months. So I, I believe that there will be a return uh, within our industry to more gas drilling uh, next year. Canada, Canada, it's interesting, Canada had long been recognized before the, the tar sands really came into focus. Uh, the, the focus in Canada was uh, almost totally on natural gas and there are, there are tremendous resources of natural gas up here. And are you putting a great deal of effort into exploration, or are you just? Uh... We, we're we're because of our, our effort on the tar sands or the oil sand deposit that we have, uh, we, we've put uh, much less emphasis on natural gas. Although we uh, uh, we have been uh, dusting off a lot of our, our plays and and uh, pouring over seismic, and uh, some of the leads that we have in our plan is to uh, probably this winter to return to a little more aggressive. Uh, exploration on the gas prone areas primarily primarily in our what we call our northern area or northern British Columbia and northern Alberta it's just different I, I think what happened uh, last year you know part of it as well besides the cost you had if your costs are increasing and, and you're looking at, at maybe the probability of four dollar gas uh, it it, it, it Put your stomach in a little bit of a knot when it comes decision time as to uh, you know do you spend this year or do you put it on another project, and when oil is uh, 
is in the $65 to $75 U.S. range or even higher as it uh, peaked the last uh, day or two. And that, that's an easy decision. If you're uh, When there is a disconnect in price, generally you'll put uh, your immediate uh, capital uh, towards that product. And that, that's what happened. There's a, there was a bias within the industry to put it onto oil projects. I can't say I blame you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let me ask you a quick question, Bill. Bill, okay. do you believe in peak oil? Uh, <laughs> I, I believe that uh, I, I believe that, uh, and what I see and what I see is peak oil. Uh, I, I believe in peak oil uh, from conventional pools, uh, but I also am a great believer in the in the ingenuity of mankind uh, to overcome some of these things. Uh, so. Yes, uh, if you look at uh, you know how much of an oil resource do we have in the world that's uh, that's what I'll call easily attainable through primary and secondary recovery techniques, there, there certainly is uh, is a peak oil, and uh, we're probably fairly close to peak oil. Uh, that's that's why the oil sands I believe are coming into prominence uh, because of the fears uh, associated with uh, peak oil on the conventional side. However. Uh, just to, just as uh, we, we've moved over the last hundred years from uh, using whale oil and kerosene uh, in, into an era where we're very dependent on hydrocarbons, uh, I, I think that uh, mankind will come up with other innovative ways, either either through the hydrocarbon molecule itself or or, or, or through other uh, methods uh, for energy uh, to to help us out over the next hundred years. That to me says you're a man who does believe in it, but you believe in our ability to get out of it. Oh, I, I do. I always believe that. I'm never. I always am one to look at the sort of the bright side of the of the page rather than the dark side. I call it peak cheap oil. Yeah, that's. I, I very much agree with you there. Um, this has been a fascinating interview, Bill, and it's gone on uh, much longer than uh, the interviews normally do. But let, let me just um, uh, give you a kind of minute to just uh, tell us, you know, I mean, there are plenty of Canadian oil trusts out there. There are plenty of oil companies out there. Why should we choose Penn West? I think very simply, and it's the same story that we, we've told, uh, you know, for, for many months, is that uh, uh, we are, uh, uh, I think from from a point of view of investors, we're a conservative conservatively managed company. Uh, we're a company that has a, a good balance sheet. Uh, we're a company that uh, I, I believe that when an investor puts his or her head on the pillow at night, uh, they don't need to worry about uh, uh, where their money is invested in, in terms of how the company is run and the quality of the assets of the company. Now, we are in a, we are in a commodity business and, and we are dealing with the world economy as well. So uh, certainly uh, we're, we're a slave to uh, to some of those factors, but uh, we are we believe we're a strong company, and, and then on top of that, sort of the uh, uh, the, the the cream uh, on the cereal is the fact that uh, we have a, we believe a very strong uh, oil sands play uh, in Alberta, and uh, and we also are, are working on a number of other outside of the box, as they call it, ideas. Uh, uh, for enhanced recovery, for alternative energy, those type of things. Excellent. The cream on the cereal. I've not heard that one before. <laughs> Listen, as we close, Bill, why don't you give out uh, your website address and uh, your ticker symbol? Uh, sure. We're uh, Penn West Energy Trust. We trade in the 
uh, New York Stock Exchange uh, PWE. I trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange PWT.UN. Our website is www.penwest. That's P-E-N-N-W-E-S-T. dot com. Bill Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. I'm sat in a cafe in Soho with a huge piece of lemon cheesecake and a cup of coffee. And sitting opposite me is Michael Hampton, or Dr. Bum. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dominic. Well, we've got several things to talk about today. Um, Firstly, uh, the property show from last month. Where are we in your great unfolding? Well, um, it's possible we've seen uh, a top in the UK property market. And uh, as evidence for that, um, the main bit of evidence that I can cite is a slowdown, a dramatic slowdown in the reported house price, monthly house price increases from the various index providers. Um, that is a sign that uh, the, the heat is coming out of the market and fast. Um, the second thing is the rather dramatic change in sentiment. Um, if, you're, if you're reading the London papers, Sunday Times, Telegraph, and so forth, there's been a pretty interesting number of very bearish articles published in the last few weeks. And I would say this is suggesting that we could get a slowdown and a slide in this market without an increase in interest rates. Um, and the question we were talking about before you started digging into your pie was uh, whether, in fact, we're going to see an increase in rates. And that's a very interesting question. I think a lot of the people who uh, are in the property market are, in, in effect, talking the market down a little bit on the hope that they'll persuade the Bank of England not to raise rates. But the real problem for the Bank of England now isn't just the property market, it's inflation. And I'm thinking about the flood that we saw this past uh, couple of weeks, the floods. And that's going to have some negative impacts on property through reductions in uh, some prices of local property where the floods occurred, which may or may not show up in the indices. I, I don't really know how they're going to treat that. But it could have a fairly interesting impact in some areas. But also, that those floods will have the impact of putting food prices up because it will have had some impact on uh, food, food production in the U.K. and distribution issues as well. Um, things like milk um, are in short supply. And I reckon quite a number of other crops that are grown in the U.K. will have been affected by this as well. So I don't know if the Bank of England can back away from the uh, inflationary increases they're seeing now and uh, not put rates up. So, you know, I, I really I would be surprised if this is the end of the rate rises, even if we see a more dramatic slowdown in properties. So uh, a slowing property market together with further rate rises uh, may be just what the bears want to see in, in the U.K. property market. We've um, been shielded in the U.K. from the rise in prices in commodities generally because of the strong pound. Yes. Is the strong pound something you see, is this a trend you see continuing? Well, I, um, I, I think we might see the pound go a little bit higher against the dollar. Um, but the interesting thing will be to watch the progress of the pound and the euro against Asian currencies. Because arguably the uh, Chinese renminbi and the Japanese yen and various other currencies in, in the Far East are, are what's really undervalued at this point. And um, I, I think if, if, if I had most of my, uh, my 
my wealth or my portfolio in in, uh, in sterling, I'd be looking to pick up some exposure to those foreign currencies. I do think the dollar is unfortunately going to be stuck uh, for some period of many months and years even uh, with weakness and perhaps weakness against the pound. But uh, the pound in, in its purchasing power parity basis, I'll say that again, purchasing power parity basis, looks, uh, looks overvalued. Let's move the conversation on to the general markets. Now, big, big corrections last week. Um, looks like we're seeing a bit of a bounce at the moment as we talk. It's uh, the last day of July, Tuesday, the 31st of July. Um, yeah, I don't expect much more from this market on the upside. I mean, you know, I don't think we can rule out a retest of the highs, but I, I think that would be uh, a, a surprise and, and maybe even a big surprise for me if we see that. A bounce, sure. We're, we're seeing it. 1500, maybe 15, a little higher on, on the SPX is possible. Um, you, what I'm watching is the volumes here. The volumes, selling volumes on the way down were very heavy, which makes me feel that minimum we've got to retest those lows. Um, and now the rise seems to be coming on much lighter volume. So I'm tending to, to disbelieve these. Um, I had a number of bear funds and puts and so forth which I've mostly sold last week, near, near the low, it's a little bit early. Um, I, I, you know, so I'm, I'm riding the market back up in the sense that uh, I have quite a, a large position, a long position on gold shares, which we can talk about shortly. Well, but I, and I'm thinking of re-establishing those puts and bear funds um, you know, fairly soon. I, I was putting in orders today, actually, if the market rises uh, Another, it's already up almost 100 points today. If it rises another 50 or 100 points, some of my puts will begin to come back into my portfolio. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, looking to establish myself uh, for, a, for a further drop. Once a right shoulder, I'm looking for a right shoulder here in August, once that's in place. One of the things that concerns me, Michael, as a, as a gold bull, is that Gold seemed to have decoupled itself rather from the indices, and it seems to have recoupled itself. Um, you know, we had the correction in the markets last week, and sure enough, we had a big correction in the gold stocks. What's your outlook for gold? Well, um, we've got to think about who owns gold and what else they own, because uh, the problem for gold and gold shares is that people who own gold and gold shares, most of them, they have uh, other stocks as well. And when the market drops, they, they come under pressure to uh, unwind, carry trades, and uh, cover margin calls and so forth. The decline in and gold always seems to come that few hours later, doesn't it? Yes. The market tanks, and then it always seems to be later that afternoon or well, the next day that gold well, I mean, The explanation for that, the logical explanation, there are others, but one might be that uh, people see that they're going to get margin calls and they're going to have uh, redemptions and whatever, and they're going to need some cash, and so they sell... Uh, they sell their gold shares as well as selling their, their, uh, their financial and, uh, and general stock market uh, parts of their portfolio. But, you know, I, I think this is just an early stage phenomenon. I think once, once people uh, have taken their portfolios back to comfort levels, they'll come back in and start nibbling at gold. Because the real thing for gold here, and I'm, I'm even seeing people like Mish Shedlock, who some of the listeners may know, uh, Ms. Shedlock uh, writes a very good column talking about uh, various um, stresses in the market. He's been talking a lot about the subprimes. Um, he's gotten very bullish on gold now because he sees that at some point, maybe some point soon, the Fed is going to have to start making uh, more dovish noises um, to, to turn the markets around. 
So um, when that happens, I think we could see two interesting things happen. Talked about before, we could see the, the long end of the curve go back up. We could see bonds uh, yields rising while short-term rates go down. Um, and, and then we would probably see a, a big drop in the dollar and uh, flight into gold. So um, I think we, we, we're going to experience some stress maybe with our gold shares for the next few days and weeks, maybe weeks. Um, and then after that, we're going to be in for a real party. Oh, I like that. Now, gold shares, producers, late-stage developers, I can see them going very well. But if we get a serious downturn in the markets, explorers, now they, these guys need cash. A bigger risk there, and uh, you know, if this stress goes on for more than a few days and weeks, then uh, the, the explorers, their problem is that uh, they uh, need to keep going back to the markets and tapping the markets to finance themselves for future drilling programs and overheads and so forth. And so, if this market um, stress um, um, in, in continues long enough, it, yes, it would put some pressure on, on the explorers. Explorers. I'm actually holding quite a number of explorers. It's an important part of my portfolio. Because, you know, I think we'll probably get a move in gold, which um, will happen before these guys run out of money. And, uh, of course, the, the good thing about the explorers is they're, they're like, um, they're like out-of-the-money call options on gold. And, you know, if we get a big move in gold, um, some of the explorers would do very well. But, you know, I do now think whenever I buy a share, whether, you know, this company actually owns gold, has cash flow, or whether it's simply uh, you know a team of uh, geologists who are looking for a deposit. And I think that's an important consideration people should make when they're buying. And are you, you're a gen although you own a lot of explorers, are you generally a preferer of a late stage development or a producer? Yeah, well I mean I've raised a bit of cash and you know I'm reinvesting that cash um, and uh, you know I mean some of it's going into explorers but um, uh, you know, predominantly where I'm buying gold shares, I'm looking to, to buy, um, you know, maybe 10 or 20 percent goes into explorers, and I'm looking to more heavily uh, get involved in, in, in production and near production stories. This is where the big money is going to be made. Uh, in, in, you know, from, uh, well, sorry, I say big money, I mean, um, safer money will be made, is what I should be saying. Um, care to give us any tips? Anything you like at the moment? Um, yeah, I don't really like doing that on the show so okay, much, that's but fair uh, enough. occasionally we... Well, we, how do uh, we find, find out what you like? Well, it, the best thing to do is to go into the website, www.globaledgeinvestors.com, and uh, please come along and see what, what shares are being talked about there, not only by myself, but uh, our other experienced investors, and start a thread, ask questions if you like. Okay, Michael, well, thanks very much. Once again, that's greenenergyinvestors.com. And yours truly has been asked to um, submit a couple of newsletters on the commodities markets uh, by Money Week magazine. So I might pilot them first on Global Edge Investors. Well, there you go. You're an so opportunity you can, you can for see an the advanced thoughts. look. You can hear and read the thoughts of the maestro himself. <laughs> well, before, before we finish, Dom, I just mentioned one further thing, if I can. Of course. Um, I'm going to do a, a video um, which will go on to uh, Google, probably, and there'll be links from uh, Global, from GEI. Um, and this video is going to take and ex extract the um, 
parts my parts from the podcast that we did on property. And I'll be including some charts and, and so forth there. And I'd like people to come along and have a look. It's my first attempt at this, so it'll probably look very amateurish to some. But uh, comments would be very welcome. And I want to know if people would like to see more of this type of thing. All right. Great. Mike, thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight. With music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.